Hey everyone, welcome to this new episode of my podcast. Uh, in this episode, I, I've got interviewed by Francesca Van Thielen and she wanted to learn about the details of my new book, The Offer You Can't Refuse. So we dove into the details. I shared many cases and Francesca also asked me about my history and how I became an author of business books. So I hope you're going to enjoy this episode, everyone. Thanks for listening. Steven van Bellingham. It's a great pleasure to talk with you about your latest book, The Offer You Can't Refuse. Um, it's a very tempting title, I must say, very to the point, but we will talk about that later. Uh, first, you were planning to write this book while traveling around the world. Yes. You had a very busy schedule and you thought about writing this book in, in, in airport lobbies and, and, and hotel rooms. But then the pandemic um, was there, there was the lockdown, so you were stuck in Knesselare. So how was it to write this book in Knesselare? Uh, to be honest, I had to adapt myself a little bit to it because mentally I was really ready for, for my spring. I was going to Australia and to Panama and Kuala Lumpur. I was really excited. And then in two weeks time, everything was gone in my, uh, in my calendar. An empty agenda. Empty agenda. And to be honest, I was panicking a little bit. I was worried that I would be out of a job for for months, maybe more than a year. Um, but my research for this book was, was ready. I finished it at the end of last year. And you know, I, suddenly I had a lot of time, so I decided let's start writing it. And um, every minute I had in the exotic town of Knesselaar, <laughs> I was behind my computer, started to write it. And um, you know, it went fine and uh, I enjoyed myself. It gave me energy to write the book. So, uh, and did you get special insights um, while being in lockdown writing this book? Every day. I mean, it's, it's crazy. I had the, the, the scenario ready for the book, but then suddenly you're in lockdown and, and you get so much yeah, input from things that were happening, companies that, that needed to adapt themselves because it, it became really clear that digital would be, be a, a much oh. more important part of our lives. Uh, so I had to look into my stuff and see, is this still yeah. relevant or do I need to change things? And I got inspired by many companies that were also uh, trying to help out. Uh, many companies saw that there was a need, that there was a scarcity um, in healthcare material, for instance. And then I saw a company like Lego who started to make protection gear for, for nurses with, with Lego helmets. And, you know, I saw all these things and it really inspired me and I was glad. So it was glad. a kind of confirmation of what you were writing about. It happened in, in real life. Yeah, yeah, that was exactly yeah. my feeling. I didn't change yeah. my concept because of the pandemic, but I had the feeling that Everything that I was talking about was just becoming more important in, in just eight weeks' time. So the book would have been different if it was written in Kuala Lumpur <laughs> and Japan or whatever, wherever you were planning to go. It would have been different, yeah. yeah. It yeah. would have been different. I think I would have been maybe more careful about pushing so hard on, on things like using your strength to improve society or to make digital even more important, but now I mean, I'm more convinced than ever that, that this story is, is really something to look into as an organization. Well, Stephen, uh, as a child, you've, you were already very intrigued by technology. So, so how come uh, I was, triggered that? I was very lucky. Um, my dad's sister, Mieke, uh, she married an American who lived very close to San Francisco in the Bay Area, right next to Silicon Valley. And, um, my, my grandfather, he wanted to see where his daughter was living because back then, we're talking about the 1980s, it was really pretty exotic if your daughter married with an American guy. Uh, so my grandfather wanted to go and uh, he wanted to go for a month 
and he wanted to take one of his children because he couldn't speak English. And my dad and his other sister, they were like, yeah, but we have to work. And my parents said, you know what, we're going to send Stephen with you. And I was, I was 12 back then. I already spoke a little bit English. My dad taught me when I was 10. So I went with my grandfather to, uh, to the States for the first time. And it was really fun. My, my aunt and uncle, they lived in this really small house. So we had a mobile home outside of their house on the drive-in, on the, on, the, on the street. And I lived for four weeks with my grandfather in that mobile home. And I had the time of my life. And you know, I can't imagine. I, it was, it was fun. And uh, when I came back home, the first thing I asked my parents was, when can I go back? And two years later, I could go back, and then I could go back another time. Mm -hmm. And then I became 18, went to university here. Every summer I went there, took uh, But you didn't become courses. an engineer. No. You became a marketing man. I'm a marketing man. Yeah, you know, I got excited by the technology of Silicon Valley. Yeah. Um, but I'm a, a marketing and a customer guy. And I think that's also part of what happened in my childhood. Uh, my parents had a photography store in Maldeham, very close to Knesselare. And um, looking back to how my dad did things, I, I can say that he was actually pretty innovative in terms of marketing. I still remember he came home one day and he had, he had a course that he took from a Vleric professor from the Vleric Business School, Eric van Voer, who is like the guru in direct marketing and one-to-one -one marketing. And my dad came home and he started to build a database and he started with uh, personalized marketing. And every night, I still remember that, he was like, you know, optimizing his database. Every night, he changed everything. And I thought that was a natural thing to do. Now I know that probably we had one of the most advanced customer databases that you have in the world. And my dad was always thinking about how to become more innovative and how to do his marketing differently. And I grew up in that. And I think that that's who I am today, that combination of spending time with Tante Mieke in California and the photography store yeah. in Maldegem, I think that's, yeah, those are my roots. Yeah, interesting. So you express a special word of thanks to your father at the end of the book. Yeah, yeah, we still he work. It's very important to you. It's very important and uh, I have this tradition. Every time when I finish a chapter in the book, I send it to two people instantly. And that's my wife, Evi, and my dad. And they are the first two people in the world who can read a new chapter and they give me their feedback Honestly, they look for details that I made mistakes in. Um, they will say if they don't understand it. And they are my first you know, feedback source that I trust for 100%. And that's just yeah, fantastic that I have two people like that that I can trust on, uh, to help me with that. About technology, um, I thought the, the, the story that you, you, you wrote about in your book as well is that the fact that you, as a child, just loved to watch uh, the series Night Rider, <laughs> as did I when I was very yeah. young. And you talked about the car, the Kit car. Kit, yeah. Uh, K-I-T-T. -T. Right. Um, it's amazing what what kind of evolution we went through because everything that was science fiction in, it was the 80s, yeah. has become true, actually. It is. I still remember that my parents took me to Universal Studios when I was 10 and Kit was actually there and that was like one of the highlights of my youth that I could actually sit in that car and talk to Kit. Uh, but now, I mean, talking to your car, uh, automation in, in driving, making phone calls from your car. The only thing we're still lacking is turbo boost. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah. So that you can jump Take over. Off. <laughs> yeah, that is something I would love to have. Yeah. But it's, it's amazing well, to see. Well, in combination see. with drone technology, it might happen one Who day. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. 
<laughs> but it's it's crazy to see how fast things were and and mm. things that indeed were science fiction in the 80s are now reality today and that's really exciting about the title of the book uh, an offer you can't refuse it refers to a very well-known tv series the godfather mm -hmm. yep. and it's a line of Marilyn I Brando. Don't, I don't remember. Yeah, Marilyn Brando. Okay, thank you. <laughs> but in fact, it's the offer you can't refuse. So you have changed it a little bit. Yeah, I changed it a little yeah. bit. Why is that? Because, you know, we, we were having a, a discussion with a client, a brainstorm one day. And we asked ourselves the question, just imagine that you can dream about a perfect offering for a client. What would be the different components that you need? If you think about, imagine that you want to sell a product. What, what do you need these days to make sure that people, you know, like it so much that you take away all barriers from them. And that's an offer you can't refuse. And that's where the title comes from. Mm. And, you know, we were thinking it's, it's a combination of, of course, having a good product and price. Uh, that's, that's obvious. It's about digital convenience, which is more important than ever. Today, people want it fast and easy mm. and as convenient as possible. Yeah, but you stress in the book that that is the absolute minimum that you have to offer the customer. Yeah. And you take it a step further. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think today, you know, people find digital convenience the most natural thing in the world. If you have it, fine. If you don't have it, you're in deep trouble. Yeah. Um, but you need to build on top of that. And, you know, companies have been focusing so much on their customer journey the last few years, trying to optimize the transaction to sell something. And I think we need to go beyond that. You know, every consumer, every person, every human has a movie of their life in their head. You know, we have hopes, we have dreams, we have fears. And I think it's important as an organization to understand that and see how you can add value in the life of people. How can you become a partner in their life is, is a dimension where you can differentiate. Mm. And then a second dimension where you can differentiate is asking yourself the question, how can you add value to society? How can you use the strengths of your organization to solve certain problems in society? And I'm convinced if you, if you build your offering like this, a good product, good digital convenience, a partner in life and adding value to society, that's the moment when you have an offer people can't refuse anymore. Those two topics are the main chunk of your, of your book, of course. That's yeah. what you're focusing on. Um, let's, um, let's talk about the new expectations of customers. Um, of course, a company, especially nowadays, has so many customers. So how can you have a grasp of, of what the dreams and ambitions are of your customers? Because they're so different. Yeah, absolutely. And there is no such thing as the average customer. Um, here you need data, of course. Huh? This is a world where you can understand how people behave, how people feel, because of the information that you have of them as an organization. Now, many people are start to shiver when you talk about data because people are afraid of that. And, and this is a responsibility that companies will have to take. Um, make sure that they treat that data in a respectful way and more importantly even add value to people's lives because of that data. I'm, I'm convinced that if we will continue the evolution that we're in, that we're going to have something like proactive digital empathy, where you think about the worries that people have and then you solve them before people even you know, suffer from that. Let, let me give you one example. Um, 11 years ago, I became a dad for the first time. Our oldest son, Siba, was born. And I was a very uncertain person at that moment. I was like, okay, is, how do we need to do this? And of course, my wife did that in a fantastic way. But I made this Excel sheet to track you the did behavior. What? Yeah, I made an Excel sheet, like how often does he sleep? Um, how often does he eat? 
how often do we need to replace a diaper? So I had statistics about that because that was giving me that's some remarkable. control. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. I know that it sounds weird, but I, I become a nerd in those uh, situations. But today you have something that is called Lumi by Pampers. And as this is a new separate division of Procter & Gamble. And what they do is they understand the worries that young parents have about their children. Food, sleep, diapers, basically. And uh, they offer a security service. They give you a smart mattress, they give you a smart um, camera, that you have smart diapers. And basically that system monitors everything that you could worry about uh, from your child. Of course, you can have a subscription to get the diapers directly to your home. Mm -hmm. But they try to understand you know, what, what keeps people awake when they have a newborn in their house and then they try to solve that proactively. And that's digital proactive empathy that, uh, that we will see more and more. Is that a way for a company to become a partner in life? It's one way. Yeah. There are different ways. Huh? Uh, the most extreme way is making sure that everything you have in your day-to-day -day life is serviced by them. And those examples exist. If you go to the East, you have companies like WeChat or Grab in Singapore, and they take care of your healthcare, of your mobility, of your financial services, the whole thing. You only need one company and they help you with everything. That's the most extreme format. Then if you look to our lives, basically, you have worries about uh, financial stuff, healthcare, mobility, all those things I just mentioned. For each of those elements, there's room for a partner in your life. Uh, maybe your bank can become not just a transactional partner, but a more emotional partner. And then basically, and I think that's where most of the value is, every single company can become a partner in life in their field of expertise by just leaving the focus on the core product. Uh, let me give you an example. A while ago, the Wi-Fi in my house was not going fast enough. And these days, it's really important that the Wi-Fi goes really fast. So I called someone to come and check things out. And they did that in the most brilliant way. It was the ultimate convenience. And, those, and there's a guy that came to our house. He was extremely friendly. It was fantastic. He tested everything. And then he said, after a while, he said, you know what? All the things that we installed, they work fine. So it's not our fault. You will have to call an IT company to look into all the other things because you're right, the Wi-Fi is slow, but hey, it's not our fault. And then he left and my Wi-Fi was still slow. If you're a real partner in life, you understand that you let me pay every single month a big amount of money to have great Wi-Fi, then it's your responsibility to make sure that it works and not mine. And that's also a partner in life, just making sure that you think beyond the core of your product. So is it about alleviating uh, people's worries? It is. Yeah. It's, it's also understanding that most people have three scarce resources. That is time, money and energy. Uh, there are not that many people that have enough time, enough money, enough energy. Most people would like to have more of each of those. If you understand that, you know, as an organization, it becomes really interesting to take that with you, that philosophy in every decision you make. If you install something for a customer, ask yourself, is this giving energy to our customers or is it taking away energy? Is it making their life cheaper or more expensive? And that's a, that's a philosophy that I really like to use to confront companies with the fact that usually they're outsourcing their scarce time to me, it's costing me more money and it's costing me energy and it should be the other way around. But what you talk about now, um, I, 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 I associate it more with services, offering services to people instead of making products. Yeah. Or does this count for both kinds of companies? It works for both. Uh, imagine um, 
a company that makes food, for instance, let, let's look at them. They can sell us um, a certain ingredient. We buy that, but there's more around it. Maybe they can tell us how we can use the ingredient in more creative ways and in better ways, how we can keep the food um, longer uh, fresh in our house. You know, there's so many questions that people have around a certain product that you can add services to a specific product as well. Mm -hmm. But a company, of course, has a core business. Isn't it risky for companies to, uh, to go into areas where they don't really have the right expertise? It is, it's a challenge. Huh? And you know, the, the question is, can you be successful as an organization if you only focus on the core of your business? In the past, that's what they taught us. Huh? You have to focus on the core of your business. Today, I think you will have to broaden up and you have to look at a wider set of services that are linked to your business. And then the question is, can we do that by ourselves or do we need to partner up? Uh, let, let's take KBC in Belgium a bank that uh, is seen as one of the more innovative banks in Europe. They recently acquired the uh, rights for Belgian soccer. So they have the exclusive rights to broadcast Belgian soccer online. A bank. A bank, mm -hmm. yeah. And there are two reactions to that. Huh? Some people say they, they're foolish. Huh? They should just focus on making sure they have the best possible banking app. But there will be a good reason. <laughs> I think it's a pretty smart strategy yeah. because, of course, they have a good banking app. Huh? They have one of the best banking apps in, in Europe. But now the challenge is how can you make sure that people spend more time with you? How can you offer them more services? And the first step is that you evolve from just, a, a, let's say, a transactional app to a partner in life. Like when I came here, I went into a parking garage and that parking garage just magically opened up because I had the KBC app in my pocket and I can leave the parking garage when, I, when we're done here and the payment is done automatically. They mm. save time and energy from me. So they're evolving to a payment platform. Now what they've done next is they opened it up for non-KBC clients. So they're becoming, let's say, a payment platform on the Belgian market. And if you want to attract more people to that platform, you probably need to extend it to more services. And they decided to add entertainment and content to that. Yeah. If you look to another bank in Belgium, we have Belfius. They are going through the same strategy, but they invested in a real estate company that they're going to connect to their app because they believe real estate is really important in your financial decision making. So they're going to link that to that service. So two examples, two, bank, two banks, both trying to become a partner in life, different strategies, but I think both really interesting moves. And you know what the crazy thing is? If Facebook decides to become a bank or Google or Amazon, everyone is like, oh, they're so innovative, brilliant, brilliant, those company leaders. When a bank yeah. then actually does the same thing, but in the opposite direction, we're like, oh, what's wrong with them? Mm -hmm. But actually, the banks here are doing the exact same thing as Google and Amazon, but in a different direction. Mm -hmm. So you're giving examples of companies who are doing well. So could you give an example of a company that has uh, the growth ex uh, potential to, to be more customer-centric? Oh, yeah, Francesca, there are so many that have the potential to, to become more customer-centric. Can I, can I take one industry as an example? I think one of the industries that, is, that, is, that has so much potential to grow is the healthcare industry. You know, the healthcare industry, in my opinion, has been the same since I was born. It's still the same as, as, as 40 years ago. And can I ask you a question back? If you have pain somewhere or if you don't feel well, do you instantly go to a doctor? Rarely. Why? 
Because I don't have the time. You don't have the time, <laughs> it's exactly. It's not so bad. <laughs> so you think... Unless it's very bad. Yeah. yeah. You wait two, three days, and then yeah. if things are still bad, then we go to a doctor. That's what everyone does. That's how we are trained by our parents. Let's wait, and then we'll see. Why is this? Because it's a waste of time. If you want to go to a doctor, you need to make an appointment. You need to drive there. You need to wait, because they're always letting you wait in the waiting room. Then you have the meeting. Then they give you a prescription. Then you have to go to a pharmacy. Then you get your medication, then you can go back home. You have to take half a day off because you have a little headache. What if you could turn that around? Now we as consumers, we have to go to the healthcare system. What if the healthcare system can come to us? Imagine that you have an, an app on your phone. You, you push a few symptoms when you feel something, when you have pain, and instantly you have access to a professional doctor, healthcare professional that talks to you and says, Francesca, what do you feel? What's going on? and they can filter out if it's something serious or not. But and they have it, been experimenting with this during uh, the lockdown. Like yeah, exactly. Morning. During the lockdown that's happening. And you know, imagine that they say, oh, we, we know exactly what's wrong with you. Um, we will instantly give you medication and it will be delivered at your doorstep within the hour. Or if something's wrong, they book a meeting for you in the hospital and everything has been taken care of instantly. Uh, the example that I'm describing now is called Good Doctor. It's basically a healthcare platform that exists in China. Um, Good Doctor is the most popular healthcare system in the world. It has 300 million people that are using it, doing exactly this. And they even went further. They installed these mobile clinics in big cities like Beijing and Shanghai, where you can walk in and it looks like an old uh, phone booth. You walk in, there's a screen, you have a meeting with a doctor and they prescribe you something. And on the other side of the uh, boot, there's a vending machine and you can get your medication there with the um, prescription form oh. that that doctor gave you. So in those situations, the healthcare system is coming to you. Whereas we have the total opposite. And I think there's so much room for opportunity to grow there in the, uh, oh. in the healthcare industry. But the thing is that it's, it's, um, the government is involved. So you have you, you, a lot of, well, you have a lot of yeah. institutions who have their way of working. It's a, it's a different dynamic in a private company, isn't it? It is. Or should public institutions uh, be managed like a private company? I'm a big believer that public company or public institutions should be managed like uh, private companies because you know it's it's basically the same philosophy yeah? as a citizen you're a customer of that service and it's not because it's a government that I expect things to go slower or that I expect things to go less user-friendly basically if you look at my model of the offer you can't refuse you, ex you expect clear services you want them available as convenient as possible a government should specifically be a partner in our lives. It's, it's their job and the top of the model, adding value to society, that's the reason why they exist. But it's not always like that in real life, unfortunately. Yeah. An example that you give in your book of a company who really focused on customer, um, uh, customer experience is Tinder. Tinder is a unique uh, story, basically, yeah, because if Tinder came to the market, when was it, 2010, 2012? It was not the first dating app in the world. There were many others, but they completely changed the, the interface. Huh? Basically what old school dating services did, they, they you know, had an, an, a deep, detailed profile of you and then they had to try to make the best possible match and it was an, an in-depth process. Boring and it didn't work huh? in most of the cases. And then Tinder came, yeah. swipe, swipe. 
and you made a whole different kind of selection procedure, but you know, at the end of the day, the fact that it's such a convenient interface that it's almost gamified to find a person that looks interesting to you, you know, they became market leader in, in mm. no time. Yeah? Mm. It's an example how a new interface in an existing market can completely change the way that people look at that market. Yeah. They work, of course, very, uh, on, on a very big scale. Um, another example is Upcot. Upcot, yeah. I'm a huge fan of Upcot. It's, it's part of uh, Upgrade Estate, mm. um, a company, a family business. Huh? It's a husband and wife that run the business, and they've been doing this for, for years. And Upcot is renting out uh, apartments for students in, uh, in Belgium. And, you know, they use my model of the book so extremely well, it's, it's, it's fantastic to see. Like, um, everything is digital. You don't need uh, a key to get into the, the apartments. You have your phone. Uh, they have a marketplace where students can just sell stuff to each other. If, if you're done studying and you have all this stuff in your little apartment, you want to get rid of it, and other people come in and they need new stuff. So you can sell it to each other on this marketplace. But also partner in life. Uh, what I really find amazing is that in every student house that they have, they have a full-time coach available 24-7 to talk with students that may feel lonely or that you know, are, are afraid of the exams that are coming or when there's discrimination or any conflict in the building. They have a 24-7 coach, um, which is unseen in my opinion. They have a specific program to give um, high-end lectures to their students in case they want to learn more, if they want to you know, learn something about society, they offer that. And saving the world, changing the world, that's exactly what they're trying to do within their core strength. Uh, everything that they use in the buildings is sustainable materials. They started even their own uh, energy firm, Green Lemon, to make sure that 100% of the energy was green energy. And outside they have chickens running around to recycle the organic waste that they have in their buildings. So it's a brilliant example, local example here in Belgium of a company that really does all these three steps to create an offer students can't refuse. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about um, the second topic of your book. Um, okay. uh, besides, of course, the ultimate customer experience, it's that a company should be um, uh, changing the world. They, they need like a, a big mission. They, they want to contribute to saving the world. Yes. How can a company decide what goal they want to achieve? The best way to decide that is to go back to your strengths, to your core of your existence. Ask yourself, why was this company created many years ago? What was the mindset of the founder? Because in many cases, you will find the, the original meaning there. Uh, if, if you look to a company like Tony Chocolonis, a famous uh, chocolate brand in the Netherlands, um, they wanted to create slave-free chocolate. Today, they're a market leader, but that was their goal. Um, look at uh, the sneakers brand Veja. It's a French brand started by two French guys that you know, used to work for one of the big uh, fashion brands in, uh, in France. And one day they went to, to China to look at the way how their products that they were selling were being produced. And they were shocked uh, because they said this is not the way that we should treat people. And they came back and they started their own company Veja, sneaker brand. Same price as the Nikes and Adidas of this world, but zero budget going to marketing. So what they do is they go to Brazil to get the, the raw resources for their, for their sneakers, and they pay those farmers twice the market price, twice double. They call them the crazy French guys in the beginning. 
And they did that because they wanted to make sure that the farmers could send their children to school and that they could hire other people to work on their farm. That was their contribution. And you know, their message was like, you can buy our shoes and 100% of that money is going back to the people who help us. Or you can buy shoes from a famous other brand and you give 70% of the money to Roger Federer, who is the big sponsor of behind those sneakers. So when you go back to the core, why was your company created? You will find the, the, that element in society that you should focus on. Uh, but, but companies always have had um, like a vision and a mission statement and a mm -hmm. purpose. What's the difference? You know, I'm, I'm very often disappointed in the purpose of, of companies. I did the test for the book, by the way. I went to the website of large Dutch banks and I, I looked for their purpose. I wrote it down. And I'm 100% certain that the population in the Netherlands, if we would do a test, that they would never know which bank was theirs because all of them were like exactly the same. And you know what the problem is with a purpose that it, it goes like this, eh? the management team goes on a two day retreat and then everyone has a very strong opinion in the beginning and then it becomes you know, softer, softer, softer and they make an average one, you know, one page sentence or something that everyone agrees with which means that it's the average of the average and it doesn't say anything and everything that they already do fits underneath it. So at the end of the day, it doesn't have any impact. Sometimes for me, it feels like a ritual rain dance huh? that they go to the campfire, they dance around the campfire and when it starts to rain, they believe it's because of them. And that's the problem with the purpose. It's, it's just a generic title with zero impact. What you need to do, in my opinion, is look for something concrete. Ask yourself, what problem will we solve and when will we solve it or what are the first steps that we can take to, to solve it. Make it as tangible as possible so that we can hold those companies accountable to it to see if they are actually doing what they're saying. That's that means the that difference. they have to be transparent about their actions as well. Exactly. If are companies, um, uh, are they willing to do this? No, no. I think <laughs> there's a lot of growth potential there. Some are, yeah. some are, but there's you know, it, it's how we were trained as marketers. Huh? There's the curse of perfection. In marketing, you are trained that if you communicate something, that it has to be perfect. Um, I don't think that's true anymore. I think you, you have to be totally honest. Huh? If, if, you, if we go back to the example I just gave you about Veja, those sneakers. Huh? Mm -hmm. On their website, you can see all the contracts that they have with farmers. But the truth is, they're also saying, look, for some of the goods that we need, need to make our shoes, you know, we, we haven't found the perfect partner yet. So we're working with something that is not 100% in line with our vision. But at this moment, we haven't found a better solution yet. But we're working on it. You can hold us accountable that we're going to solve this. And, you know, for me, that feels really honest. And I would recommend companies not to be afraid of the, of the curse of perfection. Just be transparent. Say what you will do. Tell people your plans and be transparent about the process. And I think that is much stronger much more cre credible than just mm. pretending that you're perfect. A lot of uh, products that you can buy um, that reflect like a, a good cause, uh, for example, a sustainable product that you can mm -hmm. buy in a supermarket, very often it's more expensive. And maybe that's the reason why customers don't follow those companies. Yeah, well, I think, you know, if, if you want to be true to your purpose, to your mission statement, and you want to, for instance, a supermarket, you want to give people a healthier lifestyle, yeah, then you have to stick to your plan and then you have to make sure that healthy products, sustainable products are the cheaper option. Huh? If, if you have two products next to each other and 
the more sustainable one is more expensive and you put on your website, we want to save the planet, then it doesn't really work. So I, I you know, I, I really believe companies should, should stand in front of the mirror and ask themselves, are we actually doing what we're saying, what we're doing? And if you want to support a good cause, if you want to change the world, your prices should be in line with that vision. A great example that you give in your book, and I really had uh, goosebumps when I read it, is Nike, who has as a purpose uh, to fight against racism, and they they sponsored uh, an American football player. Could you explain us what what their uh, yeah. action was? Absolutely. So you know, there's a lot going on in the U.S. about racism and discrimination, especially towards black people. And there was this one football player, and during the national anthem of the U.S he started to kneel and you know there was a, a big yeah, a thing going on because of that and um, eventually there was so much criticism that he, he lost his job he was fired outside of the team and uh, Nike saw that Nike was supporting him before this, uh, this situation and Nike said we're gonna we're gonna stick with him and we're gonna start a whole campaign saying you know if you believe in something uh, you need to stand with your philosophy, even if that means losing everything. And they used that as a, as a case to say, okay, we don't want discrimination in, in the world and we're going to support that cause. Of course, if you launch something like this, you know, you have two reactions. You have people who think, ah, oh, great Nike, yeah, we're, we're with you. And but you might lose customers as well. But you might yeah. lose customers. It's very hard for me to believe that some people can be against uh, but in the States. Calls like this, but you have people who <laughs> Maybe think... Maybe here like, as well, yeah. Yeah, you, Probably. people were against it. And, yeah. and basically people were starting to burn Nike products eh, and putting that on social media. So imagine that you are the CEO of Nike and you think, oh, we have this great campaign against uh, racism. We're doing something good for the world. Yeah. And, and then, then this happens. This happens. I mean, I'm sure the next day you will have a meeting to discuss this. And then, you know, you have the choice. What are we going to do? Are we going to, you know lower our opinion, lower our voice, or are we going to stick to what we believe in? So what was the plan? And they sticked to what they believed in. And the coolest thing ever is that they started a campaign with as a title, how to burn our product safely. And they said, you know, you can disagree with us, but we don't want you to get hurt in that process. So please follow these guidelines and then you can burn our products in a right. safe way. I think that that's one of the most awesome communication campaigns ever. Yeah. And at the end, uh, what was the result for the company's figures. Did they sell more? Because, you know, it's a company and they want to make profit. They sold more, yeah. Yeah, of course, you know, in the beginning there was doubt and people were like, okay, what's, what's going to happen uh, now? But they sold more. Mm -hmm. They grew. Nike became more popular. And, you know, still today you see that they're supporting the same cause. And still today you see that many people hate Nike because of it. But it's what they believe in and, and that makes them so strong. And they keep that philosophy for, you know, for years in a row, it's not like they jump on a hype. It's not like they think, ah, oh, now it's important to support the Black Lives Matters community. No, they've been doing this for years. Mm. And because of that, it's so credible. But even then, they got criticized eh, because people said, Nike, it's fantastic, but please show us a picture of your board. And then they have to say, okay, it's still pretty white and male. Mm. That's a problem. And then they, you know, then they said, okay, we're going to work on this. We cannot change this overnight, but just give us some time, you can hold us accountable, and we're going to work on that. But sometimes it might seem like um, window dressing. I'm thinking about Amazon, Jeff Bezos, who announced to, 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 to put 
$10 billion in a fund to tackle climate change. But during lockdown, he fired people because they didn't get, they were complaining they didn't get the right um, uh, protection gear uh, against COVID-19. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's not really very good practice within a company, is it? No, no. And, and you know, today people expect more than words. They expect you to say something, but they expect appropriate action as well. Uh, and it's that combination of saying what you believe in, but then showing evidence that you're going in that direction. That is what we need. Um, you know, I, I, one of the examples that I love is from CVS, which is one of the largest pharmacy chains in, uh, in the US. And their mission was, we're going to make people healthier. And one day someone told them, yeah, but you guys are selling cigarettes. How does that match? And they went, uh, good, question. good question. So they had a meeting and they said, those people are right, but there's one problem. The revenue that we annually have with those cigarettes is $2 billion. Pretty easy money, yeah? selling cigarettes. People come in, they just want the cigarettes, you give them $2 billion. But still they decided to, to stop selling cigarettes. And again, the analysts at Wall Street, they were like, this company is crazy. Yeah? They're losing $2 billion, but they're going to lose more than the $2 billion because, you know, people who want to buy cigarettes will go somewhere else. So you're going to lose that business as well. So that stock went down like crazy. But at CVS, they did you know, a brilliant campaign. They, they told their customers, guys, we're going to stop selling cigarettes. Wouldn't this be the best moment ever for you guys to stop together with us? Why don't you quit together with us? And they supported people to stop smoking. And now we're three years later, and what you see is that they didn't lose any money. Their revenue actually went up. And the amount of smokers in the US decreased thanks to CVS. They said something. They acted upon it, they supported the community, I think those are the most powerful things you can do. Is that the way to go for fossil fuel um, companies? Fossil fuel companies will have that challenge. Eh? How can they, you know, how can they save the planet? That's basically what they, what they need to do. And, you know, what, what I invite those companies is to think about the trade-off that we have as a, as a customer. You know, I, I, I need a car to do the things that I want to do, even though it's bad for the planet. How can you help us solve that trade-off. I like to eat meat. I know it's bad for the planet. I know it's bad for my personal health, but still I'm not a vegetarian. I eat meat. Can we, can we reduce that trade-off? Can you bring solutions where I don't lose my personal preferences, but where the negative sides of that decision become smaller? Are you convinced that customers really pick a company because they have um, a, a higher goal and they want to uh, change the world in a, in, in a certain aspect? Yeah, that's a good question huh? because many people say like, you know, having a goal and saving the planet is not that important for customers. And you know, in some industries probably it doesn't matter. If you are in an industry where it's just product and price, then you just have to be a little bit more convenient than the others to win. But if your competitor is also good in the digital convenience part, you need to become a more partner in life of those customers. And if you have that, then you can save the planet. And, and reality is, and people don't like me saying this, but it's still customer first, planet second. Um, if you really look at behavior of people, they want to make sure that they have what they need for a good price with a good service. And if you succeed in that, then you can get the opportunity to, to you know, change society for the better. And this is the big frustration of companies that are starting from saving the world. And they're like, Stephen, we're, we're, we're saving the world. Why isn't it working? 
-hmm. Usually it's because the other aspects of, of the model, of the offer you can't refuse model, just aren't good enough. And then you attract some idealists. But if you want to reach the mass market, you have to score points on, on every part of the, of the model. Otherwise, it won't have the impact it deserves. And you have to communicate about your higher goal. You have to communicate about your higher goal. You have to do it in a tangible way. You have to make sure you have a, a journey that you propose where you have concrete steps where people say, hey, there's something happening, that it's a movement and that it's not just some hollow title on a PowerPoint slide. In the book, you also talk about, um, uh, I shouldn't say new technologies because they're not new anymore, no. but for many people, they are like 5G, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, robotica. Um, will smaller companies um, be able to compete with like the big multinationals who have a lot of means to, 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 to pay for these new techno well, new com technologies? Yeah. Um, if you look at the new technologies that are going to grow in importance in the next few years, it's AI, cloud computing, robotica, quantum computing, 5G, those kind of technologies, which seem very expensive. And if you look at the companies that are good at it today, it's the big technology players like the Amazons and the Googles and those kind of companies. The good news for the smaller companies is that there's so many off-the-shelf technologies available now that you can just take plug and play and start to work with. Could you give an example? AI uh, conversational interfaces, bots, where you can just, for a low amount of money, add a, a bot to your website. That's something you can easily do. Uh, and then you have 24-7 customer service available on your website, and it's not that expensive. And I think as a small company, what you need to do is really understand what kind of customer benefit you want to create and reverse engineer that back to see what you need to do. Look what kind of technologies can support that and then build a network, some sort of an ecosystem around your organization with smaller companies that can actually help you to, to implement that in an efficient way. So what about social media? Well, you know, social media is the example of how small companies can really make a difference. In the past, if you, if you wanted to advertise on TV, it was really expensive and only for the big international companies. Now today, everyone in the little town where I live is advertising on Facebook, very targeted with the right kind of messages for a couple of euros. So I personally think that small companies today have many more opportunities than, uh, than in the past. Are companies um, more and more limited by regulation and, and new laws, you think? Well, you know, uh, regulations and laws are one of the top topics when I, when I come to a company, they're like, what can we do? What is still allowed? And you know, I think it's the wrong question. I don't think companies should start with asking themselves what is allowed, because if that is your starting point, what happens is you go to that gray zone of what is allowed, but you know, it's, it's borderline. And you always come up with, with bad ideas if you start with the regulation. I think you need to start with how can we create value for a customer? What, what should we do to make their life better? And if you start from there, you're always going to come up with things that are allowed because you're doing something that is right for, for customers. Uh, one of the hot topics today in the business world is data ownership. What if the data that we produce online is suddenly completely owned by myself? And as a consequence, maybe I will cut off certain companies from having access to my data. How should they prevent the fact that they don't have access to my data anymore? It's a very simple answer. Just make sure you add a lot of value. And today what I see is that many companies, 
when they talk about data, they look for ways to maximize their value based on my data. What I would invite them to do is to maximize my value, and then I will come back to them. I must say, Stephen, I'm very intrigued about your ideas um, for a company to, uh, to, to, to make life easier for customers, um, to have a higher goal to save the planet uh, or mm -hmm. make the world a better place. Um, but I must say, I'm also worried about the downsides of some of the evolutions that we see. For example, transparency about pricing, because mm -hmm. now we see some very big companies and the smaller ones are pushed out of the market. So what about pricing? They have a monopoly, I, you can say. Lack of transparency in combination with uh, automation, artificial intelligence is definitely a threat to the free market. Huh? Like Amazon recently released this bracelet, a halo bracelet, and it does what an Apple Watch or a Fitbit is doing, but they can also measure emotions in real time based on your voice. So they can know if you're angry or if you're sad. If you're happy, imagine what they can do with that in terms of pricing. What if they hear that I have a great day? Maybe they're going to increase the price with 5 or 10% because they know that I will buy. I'm in a good mood. I got a raise. The willingness to pay yeah, is, hey, is higher. I'm going to buy this. Yeah. But do we want things like this? Mm -hmm. huh? Imagine uh, a real-life case studies, uh, fuel stations, gas stations. There's now a technology that if you arrive there with your car, that they can scan your license plate. Your license plate is linked to your address. Your address tells the world a lot about your social status in, in life. And if you combine that with the make of the car and the type of car, you can make a pretty good estimation if someone is in the better half of society or not. And if prices are on your phone, transparency is gone. Maybe if you have a nice car and you work in an, and you live in a nice neighborhood, your gas will be more expensive than that of other people. Is that a good thing? I don't think so. Huh? And the lack of transparency is a big issue. So I, I think in the next few years, what we're going to see is that companies will be forced to let experts, algorithm experts, come to their organization to check how the algorithms are working. Like we have financial experts going to companies, checking out if everything they're doing is But is, it's even very fair. difficult to tax those very big um, big companies, so why would they allow an expert um, in the company to check whether all those things are um, yeah. in track and There's only one safe way, and, mm. if the government enforces them to but do which so. Which government? Because they, you Good know, point. They, yeah. they put their headquarters where yeah. they want. That's true. Yeah. yeah, it's one of the challenges. So it those is a worry. <laughs> it's a worry indeed. Those companies are globally organized and governments are locally organized. So it's a, yeah. it's a big challenge and um, yeah, hard to solve. Because if you look what the, the way Amazon works, for example, um, you can give reviews on the products that you buy. Yes. So it means that um, uh, to, to, to have a new product that you want to put on the market, it's very difficult to enter the platform, the selling platform of Amazon, because you don't have any reviews. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, they have a very strong position for like smaller competitors to, to, to leave them out. Yeah. And they have their own position that they can make stronger. If, if you look at the Amazon Alexa, the, the smart speaker, the AI assistant, imagine that you say, hey, Alexa, I need Colgate toothpaste. That's fine. Then Amazon will give you Colgate toothpaste because you specifically ask for it. Question is, what will happen if you say, Alexa, I need batteries? Will you get Amazon branded batteries? Will they give you maybe 
Duracell batteries, I'm not, because the reviews are really good. And maybe Panasonic batteries will be blocked by the filter because Amazon believes they're not good for you. Maybe not good, or they didn't make a very good deal with them. Or they made, yeah. didn't make a good deal. Again, the lack of transparency, we don't know. It's becoming a black box. And a company like Amazon owns the biggest store on the planet. And now they're also owning the filter that will mm -hmm. define which elements of that store that you can see. So it's, from their point of view, a brilliant strategy. From the market, it's yeah, a little bit scary to see how powerful they can become. Yeah. So. Do you think that it might happen like what we saw during lockdown, that we will buy more local because we know how it works and, and because of the lack of transparency that we don't have to trust those very big companies anymore, that we will buy more local? I think it's double. If you look at the financial results of the big companies, uh, they're all booming like crazy. So people are going to them and there's only one reason, that's because they're easy to find, they're easy to use, their prices are sharp and you can rely on their consistent service levels. So people are attracted to that. The good news is we also go local. And uh, this is something that I'm really enthusiastic about to see how local shops are now using digital possibilities to, to get closer to their customers. Suddenly those stores have e-commerce uh, platforms and sometimes even the children of those stores take their bike and do the delivery in the town where they're in. And I personally think that's, that's fantastic. I love that. So I think both will boom. Yeah. And the, the only worry I have are small local stores that believe that you know, the fact that they're local, just by definition being local, is enough to be successful. I, I do believe you need to build your offering um, more professionally online than, than in the past. And the good news is many of those small companies are actually doing that. In your book, The Offer You Can't Refuse, you focus on the customers, the companies, but also on the relationship between the company and uh, the employees. Yes. In what way is HR going through a transformation process as well? You know, HR, I hope people are not going to be mad at me for saying this, but HR is a little bit more conservative than, than marketing. Um, in many companies, HR has been you know, too operational and less involved in, in what really matters. And for me, the core of HR is making sure that the teams, the employees are happy, are having a good time, that they have meaning for what they do so that they are excited every day to come to their, to their job. Huh? That, that's basically the core of HR. And what I believe is that the, the theory that I made for customers can almost be copy pasted for employees. You know, I, the basic for customers is a good product and a good price. For employees, it's having a, a good job content and a good wage. Digital convenience, I mean, it's not because you're in an office building that you want to work with old school technology. No, you want to have the same kind of efficiency than when you order something online. Partner in life, then it's partner in career, huh? obviously. And then the top of the model, saving the world, Personally, I think that is even much more important towards your employees than towards your customers. Uh, you, you may argue that saving the world is not important for every customer, but saving the world and, and adding value to society is so important for employees. If you want to attract young talent and you're not creating value for society, you're not doing something more than just selling a product, it will be very hard to, to find those people because they need that. So you're suggesting that it will be very easy for especially uh, the younger ge generation to just swap companies where they feel good and where they can work efficiently and where they get 
the right um, um, inputs to, to, to their job well. Yeah, well, there, there's this story about young people that are not loyal to their employer, eh? that they switch faster. Yeah. The question is what came first, eh? having companies with old school cultures and old school digital interfaces or youngsters that are not loyal to the employer. I'm, I'm convinced that if you offer something really cool, something really attractive to young talent and, and they are part of that journey, that they will stay with you. It's not their mistake, it's those companies that weren't innovative yeah. enough and didn't adapt enough yeah. to, to this new generation. Do you sometimes work with millennials or the Generation Z? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes I teach in, uh, in schools and then I And what's I your impression? What I'm are their expectations on the job market? Huh. They are very eager huh? and um, the, the world is waiting for them. They feel that because the world is waiting for more digital talent. And um, it's going to be tough for them, I think, to, to fulfill the expectations about them because everyone that is 40 plus believes that someone who is minus 20 is a digital expert. But, you know, I sometimes compare it with the fact that I used to watch a lot of TV when I was a teenager, but it's not that I can make a good TV show today. It's not because you use Facebook that you know how to advertise on Facebook. So I think the expectations are really high for this generation and they're aware of that. And it's, it's going to be interesting to see how that evolves. But I, I feel a lot of positive energy. I feel a lot of people that want to contribute to a better society. So I'm, I'm very hopeful, very optimistic about the new generation. Yeah. To round up, Stephen, I yes. have a few dilemmas for you. Okay. Let's see how that goes. <laughs> the scary part. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. You ready? I think I'll, so, yeah. We start with, I, I will go over them quite quickly. Okay. So, Netflix or streams? Uh, streams. Why? Because I'm a fan of local content, to be honest. I'm, I'm someone who watches a lot of local TV. I like some Netflix shows as well. But in all honesty, Francesca, sometimes they're too complex <laughs> for me when, you know, it's like going to the movie theater every single day when you watch Netflix. Yeah. Sometimes I just want to come home, relax and watch a nice local program with people that I know and I can really enjoy that a lot. Okay. A hiking trip or a culinary vacation? Oh, this is very difficult for me. Again. <laughs> yeah, because I like both, of course. Huh? Uh -huh. Let, let's do a hiking trip. Yeah, hiking okay. trip. I really like to hike in nature. Okay. Fast food or slow food? Um, slow food. Hmm. San Francisco or Crasselare? Hmm. San Francisco. I see some doubt. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. A, they're very difficult dynamics. Yeah. It's family life, and how do you how do you look at San Francisco? San Francisco is place a place where you've been many times. It's like my second home, and something strange happens to me when I arrive in San Francisco. It's like I get a boost of energy. And I, I really feel at home when I walk on the streets of San Francisco. It's, I, I need to go there um, at least once a year, which won't happen this year, but it's, um, I'm very much attracted to that city. Mm -hmm. Tackle climate change or inventing a corona vaccine? Climate change. Yeah, the corona problem is, is a terrible thing, but it will go away, and I think the, the biggest challenge for society and, and humanity in the next decades is, is the issue about climate. That's not something we can change with one little thing that's going to require new behaviors, new, new attitudes, new products. Everything has to change eventually. And so are, it's far more complex. Uh, are companies um, uh, aware of this, of this bigger problem and um, do they take action? More and more, yeah. I have that feeling that um, 
many companies believe that if they're not going to act upon sustainability, that they're going to be out of trouble. I, more and more, I hear companies say that if our products and services are not sustainable, you know, or, or let me turn it around. The fact that our products should become sustainable um, is going to become a minimum demand. It's just going to be something, a hygiene factor, that we will have to make sure we have in three, five, six, seven years from now. You have to change job tomorrow. Okay. You want to work for a startup or a big multinational? Startup. Why? I don't function in big companies. Uh, there's, you know, there's one thing that I don't like, and that is inefficiency. And I've seen so many inefficiencies in big organizations. And in startups, I've worked in several startups, I always have the feeling everything you do contributes to the end result. And that gives me energy. Mm. Mm. Satya Nadella or Tim Cook? Satya Nadella, because I think what he has done is um, extremely impressive. Uh, he's, he changed the culture of Microsoft completely. His, the previous CEO was mainly focused on financial results, did an outstanding job with that, but Satya Nadella is changing the culture, it's bringing the dream back. You know what the problem was with Microsoft, in my opinion? That they achieved their goal. The goal of Bill Gates when he started was a computer on every desk and every office, and they actually did that. And suddenly the goal was gone. And then they became a boring company, and Satya Nadella is bringing that original culture back again. I'm, I'm very impressed with that transformation. Okay, thank you, Steve van Belleghem, and congratulations with the book and success. Thank you very much, Francesca.